Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to an instrumental version of Someone Like You, originally recorded by Adele and co-written by the artist with our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Dan Wilson. The semi-sonic frontman who pinned the group's chart-topping single Closing Time before going on to build a writing resume that includes the Chicks' Song of the Year Grammy winner Not Ready to Make Nice, as well as collaborations with Taylor Swift, John Legend, and Pink, joins us in a few moments to talk about his career, his craft, his process, and the stories behind some of his biggest songs. Part 1 Well, Paul Duncan, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. We never thought we would actually get to 2021, did we? No. Uh, I'm not sure that we actually have. I think there's <laughs> still some recounting to do to make sure that, that we've actually had a year roll over into another year. But um, yeah, well, supposedly it's 2021. Supposedly. And so, you know, the pandemic is over now. Uh, everything's fine. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I don't know why you're still out in my garage and we're still doing this remotely. I'm going to do that as long as I can. <laughs> I'm going to separate from you as long as possible. <laughs> That's uh, a, it's a good idea. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I feel like it's been a long time since we've hung out. I mean, to our listeners, it may not feel that way because we did the 12 days of Christmas, uh, and it seemed like we were together every single day over the holidays, but we weren't. Um, and so when we got back together this morning, there was a lot to talk about. And, and I, I think it's kind of funny that uh, we didn't really spend any time talking about my children or uh, our families, or how we spent the holidays. We just launched right in on a couple of music documentaries that we had seen <laughs> in the interim. Um, true, true to form for our friendship over the years. Um, but uh, I was talking about this Gordon Lightfoot documentary that I had seen just the last couple of days, which was right. great. Uh, and then the one that I think a lot of people are talking about is that Bee Gees documentary. Yeah. Have you seen that? I have actually. Uh, I don't have HBO, but my wife really wanted to watch uh, Wonder Woman 84 on Christmas Day. So I signed up for HBO for a month and I was like, well, hey, look, if we're going to sign up for HBO for a month, then we're going to do nothing but watch HBO to get our money's <laughs> right. worth for the rest of the month. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh, I did. I watched the Bee Gees uh, documentary um, a couple days after Christmas and it was uh, fantastic. Yeah, I thought it was incredible. I mean, I. Uh the, the whole documentary, especially like the early years, the, the songs like Massachusetts and uh, the New York mining disaster song that, that not too many people know about compared to the Saturday Night Fever stuff. Um, but, you know, they were a legitimate band. With, oh, for sure. You know, big hits before even they came out with one of the biggest projects in history with Saturday Night Fever. Um, but it was it was super fun to watch that process and to watch them in the studio around that time and just to see kind of how they shifted from this sort of kind of folky uh, brother harmony group into this disco juggernaut. (laughs) Into a confidence machine. (laughs) Totally. Uh, A confidence machine with high falsetto leading the way. Um, I can never get over the beards and the voices. A bearded falsetto. It's a little unsettling, isn't it? But (laughs) but it's interesting to see, you know, they, I don't want to give too much of the documentary away because I think everybody should watch it. But there's a point at, at which 
their producer, Arif Martin, kind of suggested, hey, why don't you go in and do this, this background vocal in, in a falsetto, Barry? And so he goes <laughs> in and does it, and it's, history is made. It's like they hear it, and they're like, that's it. That's the sound. Right. And from that point on, Barry refers to the voice almost like it's another person. Yeah. He says, and then we just started writing songs for the voice, <laughs> that falsetto voice, that new, that, that new persona. And I thought, you know, this is almost like a Ziggy Stardust type of thing. Right. It's almost like a, a full alter ego. Alice Cooper. Yeah, totally. That that Barry, you know, in particular, the whole, the whole group, but Barry in particular, it kind of seemed to assume this new character. And it opened them up creatively uh, in brilliant new ways. And I think you ushered in a movement that literally changed the world of pop music. Yeah. I was struck by how much Barry identified first and foremost as a songwriter. Yeah. Um, and it kind of ties into that because he's talking about he's now writing songs specifically for, quote unquote, the voice for, for that persona. Um, and there was such a, a backlash against disco. And as yeah. the most successful disco group, you know, they really got hit hard and they just kind of flipped the switch and went, well, we're songwriters. Right. So if you don't want to hear us on the radio then we're going to go write hits for Barbara Streisand and, yeah. you know, for... Dionne uh, Warwick. Dionne Warwick, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, yeah. Islands in the Stream. I mean, and when you think about, like, uh, Islands in the Stream, like, of course that's Barry Gibb. You can totally imagine <laughs> totally. him singing it. I totally. mean, and, and so it was, like, interesting to unpack how at the heart of it all was the songwriting. Right. And, and, you know, we're going to find a way to get our songs out there. If we're not the ones... Uh, doing it then other people will which says something about you know uh, the the willingness to set aside ego in service of the craft right writers gotta write <laughs> as they say and it's it's interesting there there haven't been that many bands you know artists that were successful in bands and then went on after that to have a successful behind the scenes songwriting career mm. um and, you know, there are a lot of writers that we've talked to that had bands before they became behind-the-scenes songwriters. But I'm talking about successful bands. Right. Um, and, you know, this this is kind of a nice tie-in, nice little segue. Watch how I do this. But Dan Wilson, oh, nice. uh, who is you know, our guest on today's episode, is one such writer. I mean, Semisonic was a very successful band in the 90s. Closing Time was a huge hit. Yeah. Um, and I think people are surprised now to find out, oh, Someone like you by Adele, that's from that guy from that band I know. Right, right. And Not ready to make nice, the Dixie yeah, Chicks. There aren't that many of them out there that are that have done that uh, at the band level, at the artist level, and then went on to be successful behind the scenes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, I, I think, say like Linda Perry, who was yep. was on the show not long ago, she uh, had success with Four Non Blondes. That was kind of the start for her. Um, and then, you know, made more of a name for herself as a producer and, and writer behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, there's not a lot of examples of that. Um, I feel like Ryan Tedder is kind of there, you know, yeah. although it's kind of simultaneous for him because One Republic is still a, a successful entity. You know, Smokey Robinson, I don't even know how to categorize him. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, the miracles were huge, but he was such a writer, you know, at, at Motown as well. Um, but really kind of being able to shift into a completely um, behind the scenes kind of role. Uh, I think of uh, Albert Hammond, who kind of came out of the gate with It Never Rains in Southern California. That was a big hit for him in the early yeah. 70s. And then he went on to become, you know, 
hugely known as this behind the scenes songwriter you kind of see it happening the other way you see people like lady gaga or bruno mars who are huge artists but actually have a track record of writing for other people even before you know yes. see is another example like yeah. you see you see it going that direction pretty frequently but you don't really see it going the other way that often because there's a difference between you know somebody like Dylan, who a lot of people did Dylan's songs, but I I don't to my knowledge he never sat down with an artist and was like, let's write a song for you, <laughs> right? Um, I, I don't think so. But what's interesting is that we've actually seen guys like Elvis Costello do that. Yeah, uh, you know he did that with Paul McCartney. That entire Flowers in the Dirt record, right? Was basically Elvis coming in and saying, we're gonna write a record for you. And and I who wouldn't go and write a record with Paul McCartney? <laughs> right. Um, well, and it, it all comes back to that kind of like, are you a songwriter first or are you an artist right. first? And so that's where you kind of begin to to recognize some of these um, people like where the, the, the craft, the need to write songs is in there. And they're right. going to do it, you know, whether they're the one on the stage or whether they're the one behind the console or whether they're the one on the bus with the artist, you know, writing with them and they don't get their name in the in the liner notes other than the writer credits at all, you know, that's where you really find the people that are like the true songwriters. I'm going to do this whether or not I get a ton of glory or whether or not you never even know I had anything to do with it because I have to do it. Yeah, I, and I think that's that's what we're going to hear in this conversation with Dan Wilson. And in the case of, of Barry Gibb and, and the, the other brothers in the Bee Gees, I think songwriting was kind of their lifeblood, you know? It's yeah. kind of what, what, they, what they subsisted on. And continuing to write those songs, Scott, was their way of staying alive. Oh man. That uh that was terrible. Part 2. Songwriter, singer, musician, producer, and acclaimed visual artist Dan Wilson is a Minnesota native and Harvard graduate who launched his music career with the band Trip Shakespeare, which was signed to A&M Records. He went on to co-found the rock band Semisonic, whose platinum-selling Feeling Strangely Fine album yielded the singles Secret Smile, Singing in My Sleep, and Closing Time, a chart-topping hit that earned Dan a Grammy nomination for Best Rock Song. He went on to reinvent himself as a behind-the-scenes hitmaker, earning a Song of the Year Grammy for co-writing Not Ready to Make Nice with the group then known as the Dixie Chicks, and writing three songs on Adele's multi-platinum 21 album, Don't You Remember?, one and Only, and Someone Like You, which became an international hit and earned Dan an Album of the Year Grammy for his production work. Wilson has also found success in Nashville, co-writing Dirks Bentley's number one hit, Home, and earning yet another Album of the Year Grammy nomination for Taylor Swift's Red LP, for which he co-wrote and produced the song Treacherous. Dan's long list of collaborators includes Carol King, Rachel Yamagata, Jason Mraz, Gabe Dixon, Weezer, Keith Urban, Josh Groban, James Morrison, Pink, Leanne Rimes, John Legend, Chris Stapleton, Panic at the Disco, Cold War Kids, Noah Cyrus, Leon Bridges, Celine Dion, and many others. In addition to his acclaimed Words and Music by Dan Wilson solo concerts, he launched a social media series called Words and Music in Six Seconds. The series, which focuses on forging collaborative relationships, seeking a community, testing out ideas in front of an audience, and writing better songs, has recently been turned into a deck of 75 cards designed by Dan that distill his insights from nearly three decades of writing, performing, and collaborating with the world's greatest musical artists. You can get your own set and find out more about Dan's amazing career at danwilsonmusic.com.
Dan, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, well, this year we got the first release of new semisonic music in nearly 20 years with the EP You're Not Alone. And uh, for guys like me and Paul, who are huge 90s rock fans, this is great news. Um, and I understand that a, a famous frontman from another band from that era played a roundabout role in the realization of the new project. Tell us a bit about that. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, I, Semisonic, um, we, we did shows into like 2003, and then we, without a lot of formality, we, we stopped touring and uh, didn't really, um, I, we had a couple talks, but we didn't have a plan. We didn't know when we'd start again. And uh, in the intervening time, because we're all friends and we like hanging out together and we like to make music together, we've figured out a lot of way to a lot of ways to play shows um but uh you know like ben benefits or fundraisers or things like that and you know because we like to hang out and we like to be together but i hadn't written any songs that that seemed good enough for the band uh right enough for the band and hmm. um john claims that he, john munson the bassist from semisonic claims that he asked he uh, he has asked me every two years when we're gonna make some new records and uh you know when we're <laughs> going to record together and uh right i it's probably true he's probably the one with the mo with, with uh, a little more like come on let's you know flag waving let's do this um right but i still tr i tried every every couple of years i tried to write a song that would be a semi-sonic song and it just never quite worked and um huh. the kind of turning point came in a really strange way i had a great meeting um in 20 late early 2017, late 2016, several years ago, I had this great meeting with um, one of my favorite singers, Liam Gallagher, whom I admire yeah. a lot. He and I had met a couple times um, at uh, festivals in the UK um, back in the day. Uh, and those were ve very comical. And I basically, he lived up to his reputation as a hilarious wild man at that time right. and um then we had this great um meeting about writing songs uh maybe early 2017 and um we were, he was working on an album and we thought you know maybe i could write some songs with him and you know help out on the songwriting so with this great meeting and we talked about all kinds of things and i played him a couple songs that i had already written and when he and his manager left uh, to go home to england i i was inspired and i wrote I wrote a bunch of songs. I wrote like four or five songs that I thought maybe these are starts for a, for a Liam Gallagher record. And then I, it was, I sent them probably two weeks later or less. I, I sent them to Liam and his management and they all replied right away. Oh dear. So sorry. We're done with the album. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> and it was like, literally, I don't think 14 days had passed. <laughs> so I think they just didn't remember when they talked to me that the record was done. I have right. no idea. But <laughs> I thought they were good songs, and when I listened back to them, I had this funny realization because I, I, I kind of realized that they didn't, they didn't really sound like Liam songs. They were good; they rocked. They didn't sound like Liam Gallagher, but they actually sounded like Semisonic, which was kind of weird. Hmm. And given that, like, it was almost like, oh, here's your weird s sort of secret key back to your own past. Wow. Uh, use this. So we we didn't end up semi sonic didn't end up using any of those songs I wrote with Liam in mind for the EP, huh. but 
we used the vibe that I was able to get back into. Uh, it was really, it was a beautiful experience. And I had told John and Jacob when we started recording these songs, I was like, probably give, given that beginning, I suppose, I felt kind of stronger to, to say this to John and Jake, but I said, you know, here's here's one thing let's try to keep in mind. Um, we don't have to update our sound in any way. We don't have to become a new version of us. Hmm. We don't have to um, acknowledge, you know, the hugeness of Drake or, um, you know, Taylor Swift or Beyonce or, or whoever the, you know, we, we don't have to like, update we can just be whatever it is that we sound like when we're together yeah and partly that was selfish on my part because i, I i'm already get to take part in new things i i don't need mm. to prove anything as far as being current goes so right the fact that we got our like that i got my kind of like kickstart from the singer of oasis is almost even more appropriate and no told you life was long and believed it you've always known there's someone out there watching as you go just a feeling you're not alone well you are originally from St. Louis Park, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. And yeah. we, we know Minnesota as a real music hub, which I think a lot of people would attribute to the R&B movement there in the 80s with Prince and the other artists yeah. that sprang from that scene, like Morris Day in the Time and then Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and all the records they produced. But yeah. you know, long before then, we had a, a little-known guy by the name of Bob Dylan <laughs> coming out of Minnesota. Yeah. Right. And what Was the local music scene and its history something that you were aware of growing up, or were you mostly shaped by you know influences outside of the area, just things on national radio? I think I was, you know, I was very influenced by things on the radio and national things um, growing up. Yeah, and also we, my family. Um, my family spent our summers, or much of the summertime, uh, at a at a cabin on a small lake in way northern Minnesota. And the one radio station that was available there was called KOZY, and they played a kind of um, a kind of oldies country um, folk pop music uh, blend that I that probably influenced me a lot. It was "Stand by Your Man." Mm. and um the unicorn by the chieftains and gordon lightfoot if you could read my mind and mm. um you know a kind of like a strange backwoods country pop oldies station huh. and that yeah. that influenced my my musical thoughts a lot but when i was getting into bands all of us in minnesota especially minneapolis st paul were like obsessed with prince and I remember being at a, par a party in high school outside of a house and we were um, several friends were standing around talking with um, Matt Fink, who was the keyboard player for Prince. We didn't know him. He was an older guy and we were, you know, older than us probably by three years right. or five <laughs> years. But he was this cool guy who was in a band with Prince and he played us. Um, he opened the doors of his car and we were standing around and he played us, I Want to Be Your Lover by Prince. <laughs> and we, this is our first ex, uh, kind of 
inkling that this is something that's happening right around the corner. Yeah. You know, wow. in North Minneapolis. <laughs> oh, man. And the thought that that was happening in our town, that this amazing song uh, and, you know, and the coolness of Dr. Fink, you know, and the kind of the amazing kind of the feeling of hearing what felt like to us like an incredible, you know, hit R&B song, like from somebody's car, you know, like the open doors of, the, of their car at a party <laughs> was like really influential because it made us all, I think it made all of us feel like, wow, we we could totally do this here. That's crazy. Yeah, you're hearing a local band, basically. Yeah, a local band that was also like when, you know, it didn't sound local to us. It was like, yeah, fuck, right. this is incredible. Well, and you and your brother both attended Harvard, which is, it's normally not what you'd consider the precursor to starting a rock band. Oh, you know, normally it'd be like, what, you should either go to college or start a band. <laughs> but, you know, what, you guys went to Harvard and, and your brother Matt started Trip Shakespeare and you eventually joined that band. Yeah. You know, I watched my daughter's trying to collaborate on something like a sandcastle at the beach and i can't imagine them eventually trying to write songs together <laughs> how did that sibling connection work for the two of you we were very close as young kids and uh uh we like my mom used to joke when when matt and i were like five and three or six and four you know uh i would make these drawings and whenever there was like grass or sky, I would give Matt a green or a blue crayon and make him fill in the sky. <laughs> as we as we got kind of older and Matt got more proficiency at various things like that, we did we did these drawings. Um, a friend of ours uh, had invented this thing called Cat and Mouse Wars, and you would just draw, um, take a big piece of butcher paper. And draw like a huge landscape on it with mountains and oceans and different things on it and rivers and then populate it with armies and airplanes and and tanks and everything uh, uh run by tiny mice or big cats mm. <laughs> and we would just we, the four of us it was four friends it was my brother matt and i and uh and biggie and george our, our neighbors at at the cabin and we would uh draw cats and mice vanquishing and destroying each other on these huge tableaus. And, and <laughs> we, so we had enough kind of a, um, that was like a band making a painting together, you know? Uh, yeah. but you know, we had enough of that. And then when my, my parents, when I was maybe 13 or 12, probably 13, my parents gave us both a, a guitar to share. And we immediately just tried to figure out how to write Beatles songs, uh, separately and together. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And we squabbled. I mean, all through Trip Shakespeare, we we squabbled. And it sometimes was, if you're in a band with two siblings and they fight, you have to witness and be part of fights that would destroy any band that didn't have siblings. You know, you, the, right. you can go nuclear with your brother or sister in a way that you just can't with a friend. You know? <laughs> so I'm sure our bandmates lived through a lot of terrible um, <laughs> Right. Well, Trip Shakespeare uh, split up in the early 90s, um, and it wasn't long before you and your bandmate John Munson, who you mentioned a moment ago, started a new project, initially called Pleasure, but eventually renamed Semisonic. Um, and your first album, Great Divide, I understand, was was made in the midst of some, you know, good old-fashioned music industry upheaval. You guys started with hmm. Elektra Records, the, a label president departed during that process, you got dropped, you got signed to MCA... You know, and despite all kind of that 
that turbulence. Um, the album was critically well received. Uh, you gained traction with songs like FNT, which showed up in the film Ten Things I Hate About You. So, um, you know, despite the the upheaval, um, we begin seeing that success. Um, talk a bit about as a songwriter, um, keeping that creative focus, keeping a commitment to writing great songs when kind of that business side of things or the infrastructure around the band is kind of in shift and, and you're not necessarily sure how it's unfolding. Interesting. I, well, early on, you know, when, when Trip Shakespeare was like at, at its peak, my brother Matt was writing half the songs alone, maybe more. And then like the rest, he would write most of a song and then give it to me to finish or i would start something and he would finish it or we or we'd work on a couple times we worked on some songs together right but it was it was mostly i i had a sort of a helpful and sort of um functional role in in the writing of those songs and then when john and jake and i started semisonic um i kind of went into it i took the same spirit almost and went into a helpful functional role as the guy to provide material for the shows of our new band hmm. And so I didn't, um, I, I, I stayed in a kind of a practical relationship with the songs. We needed a song to start the gigs with, and yeah. we needed, a you know, a song to something kind of quiet, but we didn't need too many of those. I had to write things that were loud because I wanted to be in a loud band. And it was almost like I was taking orders at my own, you know, song diner and like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cooking them up. And I, and I had a, uh, kind of unprecious, like I knew that what I was doing was sacred in a way. And I knew that writing a song was an amazing kind of miracle, but I also knew that part of the reason these songs existed was that we wanted to play shows and current, you know, at that moment, like at the beginning of Semisonic, we probably had like, when it was pleasure, we probably had like seven good original songs and seven, you know, good covers right and uh that um you know i just felt like i we needed more original songs and i just kept i just kept doing that so i i always had that kind of like while we're doing these songs i'm writing a song for a reason right now hmm. so you had more of a kind of that that sense of purpose i had a sense of purpose that was like practical and then i also had a sense of purpose because i i did want to be ever since i was an elton john fan and 11 years old I actually imagined maybe I could be like Elton John because I had learned that he wrote his own songs. Same with Carol King; she wrote her own songs. I, I, I learned that that was a possibility, and I, I loved the idea of being like those people. Hmm. Yeah, you know. Well, you know, after Great Divide came the success explosion that was <laughs> 1998's "Feeling Strangely Fine," and the biggest hit yeah. from that album is, of course, "Closing Time." Closing time. You don't have to go home. You can't stay here I know who I want to take me home I know who I want to take me home I know who I want to take me home Take me home That song reached number one on the Billboard Modern Rock chart and it stayed there for a long time. It was nominated yeah. for Best Rock Song at the Grammys, and it follows in the great rock tradition of hit songs with verses about childbirth. <laughs> um, I, this is probably the moment when you just slap the replay button on your closing time answer, but what, what can you tell us about writing that legendary song? 
Um, it kind of it kind of dovetails with the last thing I said. My John and Jacob, um, especially John, uh, were always um, impatient with my habit of having us play the same set every night hmm. for our shows. I just really loved having us the same set, and I felt like we could improvise within that. And then I wouldn't have to think about transitions, and I wouldn't, you know, all all that math would be done, and we could. You know, and we, if you write a new set, quite often what happens is you you end up accidentally creating a, 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 a an interlude in the in the middle that's boring. It's really there's a weird kind of math about how if you put your songs randomly in order, they they somehow will create a boring section in the middle of the show. I don't know how that is, but <laughs> John and Jake were sort of agitating for a new song to close the sets, hmm. and um my wife Diane and I were expecting a baby and I had this theory at the time that I don't really have anymore, but maybe I'll have it again sometime. But I had this theory that every line of every song should have at least two plausible meanings. Hmm. Like every, every song needs to have a kind of joyful ambiguity of what it's about. Yeah. And, um, I, so I started I, I, when they when John and Jacob asked me to to cook up a new song to end the shows. I I just thought about okay, what would the because I was in the habit at that time of like writing from the title. So I was thinking about like what could be a title, and I thought closing time that's a good title. And I at the time I was in the habit of starting the songs um, with the title, um, or with a with a line that feels kind of hooky. Yeah, already. And um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to start with closing time. And then it took me 20 minutes to write 90% of the song. Wow. And um, in my mind, it's funny because in my mind, I thought of it as a, like a really loud song. I thought it was going to be almost exactly like our song, um, If I Run, from Great Divide. Yeah. Uh, just loud and get and get and chunky guitar uh some riffage and um but when i showed it to john and jake i showed it to them almost as the, just busker style with acoustic guitar it, and when i showed it to them we recorded me showing them the song for a demo and during the demo i wrote the the bridge where it changes key mm -hmm. and uh afterwards it definitely sounded like a busker it was definitely like you know didn't sound that rocking i don't think but jacob afterwards said that he knew in, he instantly knew that that it was like a classic well wow. i had i had no thoughts of that kind yeah and john doesn't react to songs that way john is john's kind of a slow burn on songs so i think he liked it but i don't think he had the same thought that jake did that oh shit this is a this is big. No. Yeah. Well. Well, more hit singles followed with songs like Singing in My Sleep and Secret Smile before Semisonic released the All About Chemistry album. And that included One True Love, a song you co-wrote with an absolute legend, Carol King, somebody that you actually just mentioned a moment ago as as having been an inspiration. Um you know, by that point, you had you were freshly a, a hit songwriter yourself. You'd had one, you know, huge hit song, and obviously a lot more that were coming in the future. Um, but at that point, 
um, kind of new to the to the world of being a successful commercial songwriter. What did you kind of glean from from working with Carol and and kind of learn about yourself as a songwriter just through having the opportunity to collaborate with someone who you know was already kind of a hero? First of all, I was super excited to meet to meet her, and I would have been fine just meeting her. I didn't have to write a song for my you know I, that was just like insanely over the top as far as good fortune was concerned yeah i think um there was you know uh there was my nerves and then there was carol's um calm (laughs) and there was um my cautious presentation of ideas and there was her casual almost like throwaway presentation of of ideas uh i showed her a chorus that i was working on for one true love and she immediately thought of a couple of verses you know maybe this what about this she thought of a couple different verse ideas for it and i said i like this one and then she played a piano part that was like a kind of a backwards version of closing time that i that she was playing as a joke (laughs) <laughs> and she goes, I hear the kids like this right now. <laughs> and she played this kind of inversion. You know, uh, her, her part was... Like that. Yeah, like an approximation reversed. And it's like... I mean, it's not the same, but, you know... It was, it, and she just was t- kind of teasing me or like, you know, doing something <laughs> funny. But I didn't notice... And so she let us. She left it in the song. She, later, I learned or figured out that she was just being funny. <laughs> but perfectly willing to leave it in it was she she when i said i don't dig what you know idea she might have come up with she would say instead of saying no but it's great my idea is great like she didn't argue or tell me that i ought to like the thing i didn't like she would just go okay well what about this and then she'd play some as- astonishingly good thing <laughs> that comfort and casualness got rid of my uh, nervousness and the fact that she didn't fight for her ideas i mean she could have killed me in any fight as far mm. as song writing went right Right. if she had insisted i would have just gone with every single thing she said but instead when i was like i don't know she'd go okay this instead how about this yeah it's kind of amazing is that something that you kind of remember now when you're working with artists and you're like oh okay if if carol king wasn't precious with her ideas then then i won't be either i completely i mean i really really tried to adopt it it took me some effort but um i really tried to adopt that because i i think um like I, I recently did an interview and someone was trying to insist to me that the reason I can be l- loose about ideas in a songwriting session is because I'm not the artist in, mm. in many of my sessions. Hmm. But that's actually not, that's projection on their part because um, what I learned from Carol was to even do that regardless of whether I'm going to sing the song or not. 
to try to take that light touch yeah and openness to the path changing and a kind of sense of like i mean we don't know where this is going so i'm not gonna why why fight over like why why insist that the thing i'm that i like is better i you know it doesn't watching her do it and knowing that she's one of the greatest pop songwriters who ever lived yeah and and to see that she was not insistent about her ideas but just completely like ready to move on and try something else and also she would just drop these things from the sky into her you know voice and sing it it was just it was like oh i'll just channel this other thing now oh you don't like that i'll just channel this other amazing thing you know it's like <laughs> that was i got this all day <laughs> it's yeah we could do this all day that really changed um my perspective on what you're supposed to do wow well you collaborated with an artist named Bick runga in 1999 on good morning baby yeah. a song that appeared on the american pie soundtrack and became a top 15 hit in the artist's native new zealand um and that yeah. just kind of was the start of of this new branch that we see by the early 2000s there's this flurry of activity with you writing for and with other artists like rachel yamagata jason mraz sean watkins and others um yeah. talk a bit about that evolution of branching out um from semisonic to begin writing for other projects i had a uh, being a becoming a father um you know as i kind of hinted at in closing time becoming a father really changed my life a lot and um our daughter coco uh, spent most of the first year of her life in the hospital, literally 11 straight months without um, ever leaving. And it was it was a stressful, medicalized life, but also it just made being on tour seem um, unsupportable. And I kind of had to kind of get right with that. Yeah. And once we the band stopped touring... Uh, and I had time at home. I didn't want to just quit making music. So I kept writing songs for myself to sing. And I thought, oh, I can I could take all this extra energy and write songs for other people. And I just put the word out. And it was really, really slow. Like it, I told a lot of the people I knew in the business that I wanted to write songs with other people. It wasn't really like a, as much of a thing for like, you know, band guy turns into songwriter helper type guy, you know. Um, I think at that time... Uh, Linda Perry was probably doing it right a little bit and sort of on a parallel path sure but I didn't know I didn't know that was a I didn't have a model for it I just told everyone I knew that I wanted to write songs for other bands huh. and eventually our uh, Steve Robowski uh, uh, who was Trip Shakespeare and Semisonics A&R guy at um, A&M and um, Electra eventually he introduced me to Rachel Yamagata after I had written with Beck and uh, couple other people and Rachel and I wrote a song called I Want You and um, she uh, introduced me to Jason I'm pretty sure that's how that worked and Jason came to our house in Minnesota having heard from Rachel that I was an inspiring presence in a session I guess Jason came uh, to Minnesota and visited my family and stayed with us for several days. And we wrote for like three days and we wrote something that en ended up on his Mr. A to Z record. And then bit by bit, like just people started hearing about this and the artists started hearing about this and kind of saying, do you want to write a song with me? And I had, you know, I didn't have a 
full calendar of songwriting by any means. But I but I did I did have a kind of a steady stream of you know like another friend uh, introduced me to Gabe Dixon and Gabe and I wrote some really lovely songs together and um you know that kind of thing just kind of slowly it's almost like the way a tree grows every hmm. every new person I wrote with became a branch that had several other branches coming off of it and you know it didn't really I didn't think of it that way. I probably thought of it as a vine or a weed, you know, but now it's definitely <laughs> a tree. Well, even in a career with as many songs and as many great songs as yours, there are certain ones that really stand out as watershed moments. And I would say the Dixie Chicks' Not Ready to Make Nice is one of them. Yeah. That song was released in 2006 after the band had been at the center of a great deal of controversy, receiving death threats, having their records banned at radio, all due to critical comments they'd made about then-President George W. Bush. Um, you know, your, your uh, Recovered album has some great liner notes and stories that kind of refers to how these songs were created. And, and you mentioned um, sitting down with the band and, and proposing an idea that would have to do with kind of unity and the idea of res- responding to, to this, you know, season of controversy with a, with a call for unity. And uh, and uh, Natalie responded to you and said, well, d- does that mean that in the song we'd have to forgive everyone <laughs> that screwed us? And you said, well, y- yes, for the song it would. And she gave you a very, very clear answer that she said, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she and, said nope. And <laughs> and that's uh, I, you know, and then you just you, you followed it up just writing the word clarity, and I think it's really interesting how you know just even coming in and having an idea kind of batted away, gave you a window into, you know, where they were at as an artist and and what they did and didn't want to say, and and I imagine that must have been incredibly powerful for you moving into what you were going to say. Yeah, um, well, it's funny because like going back to the Carol King theory i had come with this sort of preconceived idea it was it, you know it was a reasonable I, I i think i think my idea was to to write a song called undivided and uh about the band sticking together mm. you know the chicks could easily have fallen apart or blamed each other or you know it had internal strife because of all the controversy they were going through because of politics but they didn't they stuck together and i thought oh undivided would be a good idea but then when natalie you know heard my kind of pitch for the idea and, and she said nope um <laughs> yeah there was an incredible clarity to her response that was in itself was inspiring but also my experience with carol you know several years before had kind of taught me to just let it go like don't don't argue for your concept hmm. don't try to get take another run at it when the person says nope, part of what they're doing, if they're doing it right, is inviting you to have another idea. Wow. Especially if it's said in a way that's, you know, a respectful exchange. And certainly when she said nope, she was, you know, she was in a way kind of swatting down my concept, but but it wasn't cruel. It wasn't uh it wasn't disrespectful. Right. It was just like I no, I can't do that. And that I sort of took as okay well i have to think of a different idea now and now i know a lot more about what i can't say right and that was really helpful and uh, and when we did not ready to make nice that 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 title i thought of the next morning we had written a, a good song the day the day natalie said nope to my pitch 
uh, we wrote a real good song called It's So Hard When It Doesn't Come Easy. And everybody, we're all happy about how that turned out. It was also about child, child uh, bearing. <laughs> um, but uh, the next morning I had this idea to use this phrase that my mom used to say. My mom was a very kind of, is, uh, but, but in my childhood she had a kind of a spicy vocabulary that she tried not to use with us, but also she had a lot of like sayings. Like she would say things like, Matt's new girlfriend is hotter than a pistol. <laughs> or she'd say hotter than a shot pistol. <laughs> she just had all these Midwestern-y sounding kind of things. And one thing she would say, if you tried to apologize too soon to her, she'd say, I'm not ready to make nice. Wow. And I just decided to use, use that to start a song with the chicks instead. Well, creating hits as a behind-the-scenes songwriter never prevented you from continuing your solo efforts, and, and you've released several albums under your own name, starting with Free Life, which was co-produced with Rick Rubin and released on his American Recordings label. Yeah. You know, Rick kind of has his own mythology as a producer. And I'm curious about, you know, his style and, and the way you work together. You know, what, what did his involvement and input mean to your songs and the way they were ultimately presented? Rick... Uh, I can't even calculate the influence that Rick has had on my life and my music making. Uh, he's um, he's a really inspiring person to hang out with. He's really funny. He's he's got that same light touch. He's ready to be wrong. He's ready to be right. He's he, you know he's he's, he's not uh, he's not really an arguer. He, he'll stand up for an idea if he really believes in it. But but you know he's. He's got all that sort of Carol King kind of light touch. Hmm. And uh he's got a million pieces of lore about recording and um sound and minimalism and his whole method you maybe you'd know about him or not but a lot of his method over the years has been to try to uh escape what he called to me the grunt work. He said when we were working together, he said, you know, I'll, if you need me, I'm I'm here, you know, and if you want me to be around for your vocals, I'll be here for every take. And if you want me to be around for the basic track of the band, totally. And I want to be here for the mix, but don't make me stay for the grunt work. Huh. And I said, okay, what's the grunt work? And he goes, well, like percussion overdubs. Don't don't make me <laughs> don't make me be in the studio. For per percussion, percussion overdubs, and he goes, <laughs> and you know guitar solos. Uh, I, I, you don't need me for for guitar solos, <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, some of your great records have guitar solos on them. Don't tell me that you weren't there for those those recordings. And he goes, oh, you know, just put something, uh, just put something in the mid range. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Like so, anything. he was never there to see the rain stick brought out. <laughs> no, no, there would be no rain stick moments for Rick. Or I think, if, <laughs> I think for Rick, he's so busy that if someone made him sit through a rain stick overdub, 
he would just be thinking the entire time, why am I wasting my life? Right. You know? So yeah. th- that, uh, even that, even <laughs> that kind of attitude about what, what's the grunt work and what is, um, you know, essential to the vibe, even, even having him lay that down, like break that apart for me. Like, okay, these things are essential to the vibe. I want to be around for this, for the vocal takes. I want to be around for the band tracking. Rick wanted to be around. He wanted to be very involved with anything to do with a snare drum. Yeah. Very allergic to corny sounding snare drums or small sounding snare drums. Very, very allergic to things that sounded like they were cooked up on the mixing desk. Hmm. Very into things that just sounded impactful and strong and t- and not bound to a specific time of recording history you know so i learned a lot about that but also he'd say these things like um it sounds great um the shaker is too big sounding try getting a sugar packet from a restaurant <laughs> <laughs> and i'd be like what <laughs> yeah that's amazing wow yeah you might you need a smaller sound for the shaker. <laughs> I love that. What, what we did was, I would see. I, I he was making notes on the on the percussion overdubs, but he wasn't going to be there for it. But what my percussionist and I did was, we tried a sugar packet, and we had drunk the Kool Aid of Rick so much that <laughs> even the sugar packet sounded too huge. So we took we took a little piece of paper and folded about seven. Um, sugar crystals inside the <laughs> the folded piece of paper and then we taped the piece of paper shut like a tiny packet and then my percussionist Ken shook the tiniest tiniest little envelope of paper with six or seven sugar crystals in it and we were like yes <laughs> finally the real winner here is the studio that's charging you guys by the hour <laughs> <laughs> well ironically or not it was it was in Rick's studio so you do the math um, perfect <laughs> That's amazing. But then this is also typical of Rick. I think I came, you know, we listened again and and um uh this this would also happen with Rick a lot. Uh we listened I I we do the we did the teeny tiny sugar packet shaker. Ken and I determined that it was the greatest sounding tiny shaker anyone had ever done. <laughs> then during playback with Rick, he was like this sounds sounds great. Um song's done, sounds perfect. And I'd be like, "Um do you like our our sugar packet?" Um, percussion and he's like what <laughs> and I said you told us to um, try a sugar packet instead of a shaker for um, for percussion and he's like oh I did what he <laughs> 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 didn't even care you know but it was great <laughs> advice <laughs> well in 2011 everyone was talking about Adele uh, in large part because of the song Someone Like You a massive hit that you wrote with her Um, and that song didn't just go to number one in the UK and US but I think like 19 countries uh, won a Grammy for best pop solo performance just absolute definition of a modern day classic Um, and it's really you know you always can tell that song because it's got those distinctive uh, arpeggios on the piano intro but your version of the song is actually more guitar driven than piano driven and i understand it actually kind of began with adele as more of a guitar driven thing i heard that you're settled down that you found someone and you're married now i heard that your dreams came true Guess he gives you things I didn't give to you 
you know, it's always fun to imagine these songs that we know so well that we've heard so many times that, you know, maybe they had a different form or a little different shape, you know, when they were first being born, so to speak. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit about the the development uh, of that song as you guys kind of worked out what would become the ultimate vibe and sound that we're all so familiar with now. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Adele had like at least four lines of that first verse. She had had these starts that she played for me. Like she played me a start of a song that became Rumor Has It. Hmm. Hmm. And she played me um, these these first several lines of someone like you. And she was so fast and so like, I have no idea how much of, you know, how much of an idea she had for the song. I just have to assume that it was, you know, probably more than those lines. But she was playing it on a bass. Huh. Boom, 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 switched to um acoustic guitar or the bass strings of an acoustic guitar still playing with just like one finger she had a way of playing the acoustic guitar with just her left her left index finger no other no other notes huh and um wow so even on the guitar it had that like dun 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 it was, sounded kind of like not twangy but kind of like a metronome or something and she, and we were working on possibilities for the song and and she um she said i don't know it, it's not inspiring um she gave me the guitar she had me play it then she said try it on the piano and let's, let's see what that sounds like and so i literally just played the same 13531 kind of mozart type arpeggio uh on the piano and then i did sort of the chords as i heard them I kind of adapted them and it was fun for me because I was trying to do not I was trying to do like the not the most typical um notes of the arpeggio like I was trying to leave out some notes of the chords and make it a little because sm- of the whole Rick Rubin thing of like leaving notes out of a chord or like mm. if something if, if if he would you know if something was too full and satisfying he would sort of be embarrassed by it or annoyed by it and you'd have to figure out a way to play the chord without that without saturating it with with harmony and notes you know you'd have to figure out a way to make it sort of more angular sounding so i tried on the piano i was trying to make this kind of like angular version with non-root notes in the bass and a kind of a sense of openness about the voicings uh mika the british pop singer yeah um he, he said that the arpeggios had a lot of wrong notes hmm and I think what he meant was um, the voicings were unusual and I left out some notes that someone might just sort of typically and thoughtlessly do, which actually I was really happy because I kind of wanted it to have a kind of slightly open-ended vibe. Yeah, they don't just switch from chord to chord. They they sort of travel. Uh, the, the chords kind of move in pieces. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, there's notes missing in the chords. And then, so, so we put the put together that piano part, and I sort of built in some speed ups and slow downs, and kind of built the piano. I think by the time 
it wasn't done at the end of the first day but the piano was mostly done and Adele had sung the the first verse the chorus part of the second verse which was a mess second chorus and we had started on a bridge maybe maybe we didn't no we didn't have a bridge so day two was like two things um we moved the second verse into being a bridge and we wrote a new second verse on the fly <laughs> and her voice sounded really amazing the second day uh compared to the first day the first day she sounded kind of smooth and the second day, she sounded desperate and raw. Wow. Um, later, you know, I learned <clears throat> that she was ha having vocal problems, and I, maybe the second day might have been a hard, a bad day for her vocally. But I, because she sounded so much more desperate, I had her re-sing the choruses. Wow. So we kept the first verse from the first day. She re-sang the, the first chorus. We redid. We made a new second verse. She then she then she resang the second chorus with that don't forget me like that all that sort of mm -hmm. wailing and sadness. Yeah, it's just breaking up. It's like it's hitting an amp, you know. It's just yeah, exactly. She's like in overdrive. Never mind, I'll find someone like you. I wish nothing. Has, it makes it sound so desperate and then <clears throat> I think at the end we didn't have an end and I kind of um, you know she's she sang the last words and we didn't really think it through but that's that stretch of arpeggios at the end was like a placeholder um, when I just was playing alone for the last four bars uh, as just a placeholder for some sort of proper ending we were gonna have and then we just ran out of time so it's just me wandering from one chord to another till I'm finally done. <laughs> and um, assuming that someone would do something to fix that later. Instead, sometimes it lasts in love, but sometimes it hurts instead. couple months later I got a call maybe like six months later this always happens like you write a song with someone and you think this is this is a pretty great song and then you never hear a word like, <laughs> right. and you're not gonna hear a word if they love it and you're not gonna hear a word if they hate it and I never ask yeah. because I'm a Midwestern like Norwegian American <laughs> and I'm too abashed <laughs> so I never call up and say did you like that song like six months into the Dixie Chicks when it was all all those songs were written and they were I knew they were tracking stuff in the studio and I finally called Rick it was just torturing me because I'd written like eight songs with them and I said you know are you what did you think of those songs I wrote with the chicks and he goes what do you mean and I said well I I just haven't heard a word about them I don't know which ones are making the record and he said hmm I think I think it's possible they will all make the record well so it's like oh but no one was going to tell me you know that that was going to happen it's amazing then actually he was like can you come to town and play some you know guitar and things but then I learned a lot, but it's the same with Adele. Like I didn't hear, I didn't hear, I heard nothing, I heard nothing. 
And then suddenly they said, can we have the parts for the demo? Wow. And I was like, why? You know, but then I just sent them the files. It was tiny. Four, four tracks, two stereo piano, a vocal and a vocal harmony. Hmm. And that was it. And they, and they, they used that and they didn't fix the end. And her pianist had to learn my random ending as though it was some sort of composition and he plays it beautifully, <laughs> you know? That's great. Um, um, well, in 2011, you had a number one country hit with Home by Dirks Bentley, which you wrote with Dirks and, and Brett Beavers. From the mountains high to the wave crashed coast, there's a way to find better days I been a long, hard ride, got a ways to go, but this is still the place that we all call home. You know, Paul and I are both uh, based in Los Angeles, but we're both Nashville natives, and so we, we kind of know enough to know that the the songwriting world in, in Nashville is kind of its own animal. It's not necessarily the same as it is in Los Angeles or, or New York. Um, talk about how you got involved in, in writing in Nashville and in what ways, you know, going to Nashville might have allowed you to flex some different muscles as a songwriter. Hmm. Well, I think I, um, you know, I had been told by people in the business uh, that I ought to go down to Nashville and learn how to write songs. This is like... End end of the um, all about chemistry phase of Semisonic. And my um, publishing company, I keep telling my publishing company, I want to write with other people. And one of the things they kept saying was, well, then, you know, go down to Nashville and write with other people there. Yeah. And I kind of didn't quite, I don't think I got it at first. I didn't understand the wisdom of that as a concept. Um, but uh, it was a really good idea. And it was, and partly because, Nashville has a, a kind of a songwriting ethic, you know, that's just very, um, it's process oriented, it's community focused, hmm. it's, um, it's, you can, what I learned afterwards is, you know, you, you're, you're really, once you get into the puzzle of solving the song, you're out of the puzzle of how to be famous or you're out of the puzzle of how to have a hit. And you're really, the Nashville method encourages at least most of the people in the session to be thinking in those terms. And because they've all probably had hits before, they all subconsciously know some sort of like rules of thumb about what to do and not to do, I suppose. But uh, I when when I went down there a couple of times, my first trip to Nashville, I got a, a bunch of co-writes with some people and a couple of whom I, I stayed in touch with um, for years afterwards. But most of the people I worked with were so depressed <laughs> uh, that first time I went. And uh, it's because my publisher couldn't get people who weren't depressed to write a song with me. Uh, so the, I got a very negative vision of Nashville. You know, I had people saying things like, well, they'll just chew you up and spit you right out, you know? Right. And, I, and I'd be like, wow, why is my publishing company sending me here to be chewed up and spat out? <laughs> right. But it it just turns out that the people I worked with on that trip were in the downswing 
for for one reason or another. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't true of everybody on that trip. And there were a couple people who I, I wrote with that I don't know if I wrote like, you know, hit songs with them, but I definitely got a a strong kind of um, education in that Nashville ethic yeah. of um, chasing the song, you know, not a win. And, um, uh, you know, having what they called down there furniture in the song, like it, it has to have some yeah. recognizable <laughs> real life everyday uh, elements in it. Right. And um, some of that was a little bit foreign to me because a lot of the soda pops and things like that that we drank up in Minnesota were not the same ones that you could allowed, you were allowed to put in a Nashville song. But <laughs> right. one other thing I learned from going down to Nashville is that at after a while is that they don't need me to bring any Nashville type of furniture into the songs. Hmm. I don't need to be a country in any way. I can just be me. Yeah. They can just put a few pieces of furniture on there in there if they really think it needs it. And they can play it in a certain way that makes it country without really trying too hard. And then I don't have to be like a fake country artist or country singer to go down to Nashville and write a song. And I think that was a great, a huge, huge upshot of going down to Nashville a bunch when I realized, oh shoot, I'm not here to pretend I'm writing a country song. I'm just right. I'm just being a guy from out of town who's like bringing weird chords, you know. And it's <laughs> right, cool, right? Well, somebody who definitely has has blurred those lines between country and pop is certainly Taylor Swift. Um, yeah. And her 2012 album Red uh, was another monster project that you were a part of, uh, co-writing the track Treacherous. It's interesting to me, looking at the credits on that album, that there actually are not a lot of writers. I mean, it's mostly Max Martin and Shellback. There's several songs that are, you know, just Taylor on her own. And you're one of the the other small handful of of writers. Um, So obviously, when you're talking about these artists, these, you know, huge uh, artists like Adele or or Taylor Swift, um, they're bringing you into to a fairly tight creative circle and and I would think that that you know means that there's something that you bring to the table specifically that they want and you know whether talking about Taylor specifically or or you know any of the other artists that you've collaborated with do you kind of have the the objectivity to to say like okay well this is the Dan Wilson secret sauce this is this is the thing that I that I bring to the table that that makes people want to draw me into that inner circle? Uh, that's, that's a really interesting question. I think, um, first of all, I can't remember, but I think Nathan Chapman was on a bunch of those songs too. Yeah. But he was definitely, he was a def- definitely part of that inner Taylor inner circle too, in a way. So it makes sense. What you're saying is like, I think it's true. I don't know because I feel like half the time if I'm like brought in to, to give people my special sauce, that when I leave, they're like, how come he didn't give us this special sauce? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't really know uh, what my special sauce is. You know, I, I, 
I, I'm constantly having to relearn the idea that I just have to do me and let you do you. And that's like, hmm. you know, that's funny catchphrase, but it's really true. And it's like, if I, if I try to bring my special sauce, I, I, I'm, I'm certain that I would stumble. Uh, you know, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to know like, uh, why put it this way. We can't hear our own work, right? <laughs> we 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 can listen to it, but we can't really hear it the way someone would hear it that that they just they just heard it for the first time. We can never hear our own work for the first time. Right. Right. And w- so we can never get that innocent fan view of our songs or our art. So we have to go by sense memory of the past and and things that worked for us for our own taste that is not for other people in the past and we build up a kind of an alternate understanding and listening that is still thrilling because you can still finish it and go oh shit i i i love this i think this is great but half the time you play that to your friends and they're like yeah 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 you know they don't they don't hear it like the way you do the other half the time you play for your friends and they're like, oh my God, this is beautiful. Yeah. So it's, it's still hard. You're, you know, like you're flying an airplane instruments only. You know what I mean? You're not, the windows are all fogged up and you, and you don't get to see where you're going, but the instruments are all good. The, the instruments work great. And the instruments can tell you you're, you know, 20 feet ab- above the landing strip <laughs> and then you can land. Yeah. So I, I feel like if I, if I don't know what my special sauce is, I, 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 I might be lying partly, but I don't know what my special sauce is on a, on a basic primal vibe level. Yeah. I just know how to make the special sauce because I make it the way I always did, did before. You know what I mean? Right. I, but I can't taste it. Hmm. It's like, you know, Beethoven wrote great symphonies, but never re- couldn't use his ears anymore. He just used his mind's ear, you know. And it's, I think it's, yeah. it's just a, it's a, it's an eternal puzzle. I'm going on and on about this because I find this to be really, really central. Like we can't hear our own work, so how is it that we, we can write something that other people are gonna just be thrilled by or really moved by? It's really hard to. It, it's a. It's like a patch of fog, you know, that you just can't see through. Well, you you, you kind of made me think of the, the the grandma making biscuits who's never had the recipe written down, and you assume <laughs> that the biscuits are going to be kind of the same every time. But it's like, well, what's a pinch? What's a handful? Um, yeah, I mean that's probably the most like that we. It's no surprise that we don't understand the workings of our own brains. Our own brains and and bodies are like ins- insanely complex and you know miraculous. So it's no surprise we don't understand how it works. And obviously, uh, to me anyway, like some large percentage of the songwriting is happening in the dark and somewhere in your subconscious that yeah. you can't even access and out it comes. Oh. John Legend's You and I was a top 40 Billboard hot R&B single in 2014 and that's a song you wrote with John. Yeah. And my understanding is that his wife Chrissy Teigen actually walked in while you guys were writing about her and kind of gave her reaction. I'd love to hear more of that story and, and just kind of just remark on, on how funny it is that songwriters find themselves in these truly intimate, personal moments with artists. And sometimes it's before you've even really had a chance to get 
close personally, but you're finding yourself kind of like observing and participating in this interplay between husband and wife. I, I, find, I find that very interesting. Yeah. Um. Well, John uh, had a piano in his uh, in his place in L.A. and um, we were just going to write a song on the piano. I brought a guitar. So we just ended up in the living room of his house, and uh, uh, we wrote one song on the first day, and uh, his girlfriend or wife, I don't know if they were married yet, but but Chrissy w wasn't there on the first day, and we, we hung out and had a good time. And the second day, we kind of cooked up an idea for a song that was definitely about like date night, and um, um, you know, that the I feel like you and I is... is um, about to me anyway it's about how the mystery is still there if you if you've known someone for a little while it's still you're still kind of trying to impress them or you're still it's still date night date night is still date night you know and yeah. and um it works in both directions and um then then chrissy came home and uh uh it was just so like light, uh, kind of domestic. She was like, I'm going to heat up some pizza. Do you want some? And, and we were like, sure, sure. So she's heating up some pizza and we're going to share it. And then she's like, what are you guys working on? She came in and, and John sang the song. And it was just very funny because it was, it suddenly seemed very presumptuous for us to be writing a song about date night, which is when, <laughs> when she's obviously one of the characters in the song. Right. <laughs> She she challenged a couple of lines. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like I would never say that, but it was more like um she she challenged a couple of lines lightly, but mainly she was like the the impression was like, "Well, don't fuck this up." You know, <laughs> like you better get this right. <laughs> you fix your makeup just so guess you don't know that you're beautiful. Try on every dress that you own. You were fine in my eyes a half hour ago. And if your mirror won't make it any clearer, I'll be the one to let you I, I, I actually enjoyed that a lot, and the pizza was nice. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like you guys put together like a, a version of Wonderful Tonight. It's like John's Wonderful Tonight, uh, yeah. and and she's his Patty Boyd in the song. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Patty Boyd already had too many songs written right. about her even before <laughs> totally. he did that one. Just, <laughs> right. Dad, she need another one. Um, well, in the video for your solo single, Yoko, we get the chance to watch you draw, and we see yeah. your visual art um, 
with your 2014 solo album love without fear uh you know is sort of integrated into the artwork for the album the same is true for the amazing booklet for your recovered album from 2017 which is we mentioned earlier kind of your own versions of some of these songs that you know other artists have recorded and you tell stories about those songs and you've got your own artwork uh worked into the to the packaging which is super cool mm-hmm. um yeah. and i think uh, what's so interesting to me about you is not only are you this great songwriter and musician and producer but you your creativity kind of almost seems like it can't be bound to any one thing. So you've got this huge visual artist component uh, that that makes up who you are as a creative person. And you've also recently done something um, that I've never heard of and I think is amazing, but you've also created a a deck of cards um, that shares some of your visual art with us and also some of your advice on on creating music and and helping songwriters and bands and producers out there um you know understand some of the nuggets and and truths of of creativity um i'd love to hear about that you know deck of cards project specifically and in what ways these other creative outlets kind of uh work in tandem with your creativity as a songwriter yeah well the cards are the cards came from Maybe like six years ago, my manager Jim said, um, I was complaining about uh, Twitter and Facebook and why do I have to even engage with these stupid things? And <laughs> and um, uh, and my manager Jim said, you should look at Brian Koppelman's Vine uh, account. And I was like, okay, what's Vine? And he said, it's, it's these six-second clips about whatever people want. So the, sometimes it's just like that first part of a chorus of a song or someone does a skateboard trick or whatever. But Brian Koppelman is a screenwriter, and his series is screenwriting in six seconds. And every day for 100 days, he was putting up a very brief little bit of advice for would-be screenwriters trying to make it in Hollywood, trying to write great scripts but also deal with the business. And so I went on Koppelman's Vine account and watched several of his uh, clips. And they were inspiring and very matter-of-fact and kind of blunt, kind of rough. It was great. <laughs> and uh, talked, I called my manager Jim about it. I was like, okay, so I, I saw those things on Vine. Those are really, really great of Koppelman's. Now what? And, and Jim says, well, just do, do that about music. And I, I kind of struggled for a while, like how to do it, because I I, it, I couldn't just do Koppelman, Brian Koppelman, because I'm not him, and I, I I I wanted to have a, I wanted to figure out how to talk about stuff that I care about in a really really short time, and so I, in on Vine, I learned how to say really pithy things about music, um, in a short short time, and I I ended up buying a bunch of books about aphorisms, which was a kind of an 18th. 19th century tradition of like short pithy sayings and I kind of tried to train myself to say short helpful inspiring useful things about about making music and collaborating Hmm. and eventually when Vine disappeared I transferred it all over to uh, Instagram and uh, continued making short and sometimes not quite as short pieces on Instagram um, about songwriting and eventually I start, I'm, I was working on a font of my own. This is typical of Dan, like too much. <laughs> I was working on a font based on my handwriting that appears on a lot of my drawings. And my font 
I used my font then to put to to put into type form whatever phrase I was saying in the Instagram series. And the Instagram things would be like if um let's see. If you like it, then it's good. If it sounds good to you, then it sounds good. Now play it for a friend. So I would lay that out almost like a haiku in my font on a on a blue ink on a white background and I would put that on the Instagram with a dual post of me talking and then the other post is just the is just the card with the like a silent movie the words on it. Yeah. And eventually um I was my friend Teddy Geiger um at a party really tickled me because she said um I love your things on Instagram they're so inspiring and so great and I was like oh thanks so much. And 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 she goes, yeah, like, I like this one best. Um, if you're gonna fly your freak flag, make sure it's really freaky, because otherwise people are just gonna say, ah, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you memorized my my uh, Instagram post. That's so funny. And she goes, oh, I think about it all the time. And then she told me like three others, and I told this. And then she goes. Um, you know it would be it would be a really good book like you, you could make a coffee table book of it of these sayings huh. and I was like oh that's a nice thought and then I told my wife Diane that and Diane said or a book of cards I mean a, a deck of cards yeah that's cool too maybe like Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies and my mm. wife goes who's that <laughs> <laughs> and I was like oh yeah okay never mind yeah it's a great idea <laughs> so I've made this deck of cards it's like it's not it it's a totally different animal than the Eno um, oblique strategies, but it's the same medium. It's like a deck of cards with pithy sayings, you know, and it's sort of almost intended to sit at, in your studio and like tempt you to turn over a card and say, oh, today's. Today's is good. Today's says, sometimes the best thing you can add to a beautiful piece of music is an irritating noise. Hmm. <laughs> what is Dan Wilson talking about? <laughs> it's like a fortune cookie. But, but an advice cookie. Yeah, it's like a fortune cookie for songwriters. I love that. Well, from the uh, from the deck of cards to the new Semisonic EP, You're Not Alone, and a gazillion things in between, we've only scratched the surface today of all the uh, amazing things that, that you have done as a creative <laughs> and, person. And the font. Don't forget the font. And the font. In the font, um, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, thanks, Dan, for, for spending a little time with us today and, and letting us pick your brain uh, about your life as a songwriter. This has been great. Total pleasure. Thank you, guys. Really nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for songcraftshow, all one word, or songcraftconversations on Instagram. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.